Good morning. It's good to be here with you uh, here in Somerset, Kentucky. Um, I've never been this far into Kentucky before, so it's been an exciting weekend for us. Um, for those who don't know me, I am Ben Lawrence. I preach in Lilbourn, Missouri. It's the very southeast corner of Missouri there, um, kind of by the New Madrid fault line, uh, where there was an earthquake in 1812 and covered the the whole uh, uh, river covered the entire old town of New Madrid, and it, it made the Mississippi River uh, go the other direction. It was such a big earthquake. Uh, it's, a, it's known as a very um, significant earthquake in America's history. Um, I used to preach in Sioux City, and that's where I knew John and uh, Kim Robbins. Uh, well, they were up there, and he was working uh, for a farm, uh, and so that's how we got to know each other, and we've, we've spent yesterday with them, and it's been very good, and we appreciate their hospitality. Um, you are a blessed congregation to have them. Um, they're very good people, very good Christians. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about, I titled the lesson, What's So Glorious About God? What's so glorious about God? Um, It's easy sometimes to think when we read the Bible and it talks about, like you read Ephesians 1 and it it mentions that God has blessed us in Christ and He's given us all these spiritual blessings, redemption, forgiveness of sins. Uh, He sent His Son, all of those. And there's a phrase that pops out in Ephesians chapter 1 three times. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 13, and it is the phrase, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. And at first, it kind of sounds a little self-serving of God. Why does God want all the glory? If He's really loving, and if He's really self-sacrificial, then why does He demand glory from all creation? Well, what we'll find is that The glory of God is the ultimate goal of humanity. It is the ultimate goal why we were created. And it is not as if God is just uh, some kind of egomaniac wanting all the attention. Rather, what we find is that God's glory, when it is spread, when His fame is spread more and more, then people live the way that they're supposed to live, the way they created Him. And we can never be happy and satisfied without God. And by God telling us to glorify Him, it is, in a sense, for us, that we might recognize who we are and that we might live the way He created us to live, that we might work the way He made us to work. What's so glorious about God, though? Well, if you look over at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. One thing we see in the book of Isaiah, especially chapters 40 through 48, is is Isaiah is constantly uh, contrasting God, uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, with idols. 
and the idols of the nations. And, and he often t- turns back to and, and makes our focus to God as creator of the universe, as creator of the world. How do we know that God is glorious? Well, the first and foremost mark of that is because He is Creator. It all comes back to Him being Creator. If you look at Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 12, one of the most powerful texts in just describing who God is. Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Here you have a, a rhetorical question. Who is, the, what, or who is the answer to that question? Who did all these things? Well, it's God, uh, Yahweh. He's the one who did all these things. But let's focus, let's kind of meditate on these words. For a little bit, you look at that first one where it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? If you took a map and just kind of clustered all the landmass together, uh, this is what it would look like compared to the water that's in the world. Water covers uh, three-fourths of the earth's surface. And we know just from experience how vast Land, the landmass is. I mean, do you is it? Do you want to walk across the United States? That would take forever. That's a huge amount of land in comparison to how big we are, how small we are. Well, if you compare the land that we know and the land that we travel quite often, and we know how big that is, and then you just see how bigger. The water is in the world. That's a vast world that we have not even experienced out there. That's a vast world that scientists have not even fully experienced and experimented with. God here, he's the one who created it. Here's a little uh, sphere of uh, the world, the, the, the earth, if you just took all the water off the the earth. So that's what, apparently, I'm no scientist, but apparently that is what the earth would look like if you just sucked the water off and the oceans off. Uh, that if it, would, it would look like a big glob of un, you know, unparalleled uh, a sphere. The waters are immense in the world, and God is described as simply holding them in his cupped hand. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And then it goes on to ask the question, and marked off the heavens with a span. The universes, we can look at those, in, in, uh, or, or the galaxies at least, uh, we can just look at those, and it seems like this uh, astronomers are just coming up with more and more uh, galaxies that they're discovering by the minute. And, and space is becoming vaster and vaster, uh, uh, much bigger than we ever thought it was. And God is described as marking off the heavens 
with a span. The span was the distance between one's thumb and your pinky. So you can see there, there's a ruler kind of behind that hand, and it's about eight inches. And God is described as taking the entire universe, the heavens, what the Jews would call, and just marking off the entire thing with his hand. How do you comprehend a being like that? How do you imagine a being like that? I can't wrap my mind around the, the, just what he is and how big that is. If you were to, to take these words literally, uh, just getting this image in our head is just above our heads in a sense. Here's an, here's the earth, and that um, that little blue dot right there, that's all the water in the world if, if it was put into a circle, I guess. But we read the next section, it says, He enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. He enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. So we see how what God did with the waters, what God did with the heavens, and now what God is doing with the dust the way the Hebrews used the word for dust, it just meant the thing that's not water on the earth. Meaning the land and the dirt and all of that. And if you sucked all the water off the earth, you see that blue dot right there, that's all the water of the earth. If we think that it is amazing how God can is pictured as holding all the waters in his cupped hand here, well, what about the, the rest of the, of the earth? What about the landmass? What about the, the dirt that makes up the mantle and all of that that makes up the earth? Well, God is described as simply putting it into a measure. And a measure was kind of like a measuring cup. Uh, the, the ancient Jews, this is actually a picture of, of the a cup that the priests would use in the temple uh, when they would do sacrifices and drink offerings and grain offerings and all of that, um, they would measure so much. Uh, Leviticus talks about that a lot, talking about like an omer. It's a measuring uh, uh, device. Well, here's a cup, a measuring cup. God is simply described as putting the, all the dust of the earth into that. And it goes on to say that he weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. You think about all the mountains in the world. If anybody's been to the Colorado Rockies, it's just an incredible sight. Um, and, and, you know, the Rockies have nothing on the Himalayan mountains in Asia. Uh, there's mountains in Africa that, that uh, are bigger than the, the, the Colorado Rockies. We just have... we. We can see those things and we can go to those parks and we can look at that and we can just see how small we are in comparison. And then God is described as getting kind of a measuring, uh, a balance and just putting all these mountains on a scale. How do you imagine a God like that? Look over at Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, 
Psalm 8 and verse 3, the psalmist is meditating on the heavens and the stars. And he says in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So here's kind of a picture of him gazing up at the stars of heaven. You can kind of imagine back then when there weren't like big metropolis lights and and all of that. Um, During nighttime, you could see stars like very clearly. Uh, Nowadays, when you're in the cities, because of the light, it kind of gets in the way and the dust particles and all that gets in the way. You can't see the stars very good. You have to go to like Idaho or someplace like that where there's not very many cities around. Then you can see clearly the lights and the, the stars in the sky, and you see things that you wouldn't be, ever be able to see if you just kept on looking up in the cities. David is look, thinking about those heavens, the stars, and the moon, and he describes them as the work of your fingers. You've set in place. It's almost as if it's like uh, when you're a kid... And you'd play with those mini action figures and, and uh, army figures, and you would set them in place as you're reenacting some kind of battle or, or, you know, making up your own story or whatever. Well, here's God kind of doing the same thing, but with stars and moons and planets. He is beyond our comprehension. How do you adequately imagine God in that way? How do you fully uh, give the justice that's deserved in these descriptions of God in the Old Testament like Psalm 8, Isaiah 40? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, the reality is that We just can't really comprehend that. C.S. Lewis said, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. Our finite minds are trying to comprehend an infinite God, and we just can't. We can't really do it. We're not very good at it. And so, mankind in general, just people in general, we usually have three reactions to trying to understand God. Number one is, we just give up. And that's kind of the road to atheism and agnosticism and, and deism. Well, we just say, well, God's too hard to understand, and we might as well not even really try to understand him. We might as well just kind of ignore it, ignore the topic, and go on and uh, do our own thing and not really worry about it. But then there's a second response to the glory of God and the incomprehensibleness of God that we do, and it's, it's kind of what, I guess, most religious people do. We put God in a box. And we start saying things like, well, God, well, we don't really say this, but we think it. God says what I think he says. God does 
what I think he does. God thinks what I think he thinks. And that's kind of, in a lot of ways, what religion becomes to a lot of people. You kind of have this one religion over here has its box, and we think, oh, this is this is our God. This is the God we imagine. This is the God we think exists. Then this religion over here says, aha, we have a bigger box. Our box is bigger over here. Uh, you don't have as much wiggle room for your God over there. We have a lot more wiggle room over here for our God. But that's kind of like what religion kind of becomes to a lot of people is it's a lot of people trying to compete about who can put their God in the biggest box. And we hear the phrase, you know, well, we need to think outside the box. God can't fit in anybody's box. And that's uh, that's certainly a true saying, a a true proverb, I guess you could say. Um, But there's also limitations with that. For example, why does God allow suffering? That's an age-old question that's been being asked for the last 6,000 years, at least. Why does God allow suffering? And uh, some of the atheists of our day kind of act like they're the first ones who brought up that question. It's been been being asked, you know, if you read ancient literature, that's been being asked ever since man was able to write and man was able to think at all. Why does God allow suffering? And we can, what we can do is we can point to several passages in Scripture where there's a specific example of suffering, and then we see that God explains why He allowed that specific example of suffering. So, for example, 1 Kings chapter 14, 1 Kings chapter 14 gives us an explicit reason why God allowed suffering to happen. Uh, you see, 1 Kings chapter 14 in verse 1, Abijah, who is Jeroboam's son, Jeroboam's the first king of the divided kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. Well, Jeroboam has kind of rebelled against God and done his own thing, made some idols in in, uh, some places up there because he was worried that people in the south wouldn't want to travel. uh, The people in the north would keep on going down to Jerusalem for worship, and he thought, well, if they keep on going down there in the long to long term, they'll just think that Judah's better. So I better make my own temple, and I better make my own uh, idols and, and uh, places of worship up here in the north. That way people will just stay up here. It was a really political strategy, was what Jeroboam was doing. But as a result of that, that was rebellion toward God, his son gets sick. Chapter 14, verse 1, at that time, Bijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. Verses 2 and 3, Jeroboam wants his wife to go find the prophet Ahijah to see what will, if his son will get better or not. What we see is the story unfolds. Uh, she goes to try to find Ahijah. She finds Ahijah, but Ahijah already kind of got some insight from God telling him who she was and what she was going to ask and all of that. She tells him, she, or he tells her that because of Jeroboam's sins, the people and his descendants are going to have a very difficult time. And he says, 
uh, it says there in verse 7, Go tell Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and for the kingdom of away, or tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you've not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have done and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. In verse 12, says, Arise therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Here's Jeroboam's wife gets the news from the prophet, Ahijah. Your son has no hope. He's going to die. But I want you to notice in verse 13, the reason, Ahijah kind of gives the reason why the son is going to die. Verse 13, it says, And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. What you see right there is there's suffering that happens. A little child gets sick, and he gets a fatal illness. He's going to die. God explains through the prophet Ahijah why that child is going to die. Because God's sparing that child from seeing and experiencing the suffering that's going to come upon Jeroboam and his house and his family and his descendants in this instance. What we have right there is we have a specific example of suffering happen and God explaining why that specific example of suffering is happening. We can look at passages like this and say, well, sometimes God does this. Sometimes God does that. That's why, these are reasons why suffering happens in the world. But what's the problem that we have today? We suffer, but we don't have prophets to go ask why we're suffering. We don't have prophets to go ask, and and God will give us the specifics about the reason why we're going through what we're going through. And this is kind of the the problem in Ecclesiastes. The Ecclesiastes writer is just tormented by this question, why does suffering happen? And he just kind of throws his hands in the air, and he just thinks, well, there's no way we can know. Uh, That's a theme in Ecclesiastes. If you look at the first half of the chapter, the first half from chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 1, 12 through 6, verse 9, there's a couple of phrases that pop out over and over. The phrase, vanity and striving after wind. The second half of the book has another phrase that pops out. It kind of drops that vanity and striving after the wind phrase, and it uses uh, the phrases, to find out, or to know over 
and over and over. In chapter 6, verse 10, through chapter 11, verse 9. And we see him, for example, here's a good one in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14, he says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. What's the problem there in verse 14? The problem is bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. Why is that? He goes on to kind of dive into this question. Verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will be, go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So he gr- brought up this you know, big philosophical question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And then he doesn't even try to answer it. He just says, well, enjoy life. In verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God. What is the work of God that he sees here? That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The work that God is doing there in the specific context springs from that question, why do why are the righteous treated like the wicked? And in a sense... The writer in this section is just throwing his hands up and saying, I have no idea. You just need to try and enjoy life when you can. And he comes back over and over to that question. We see in other passages that Job is a whole book about why does God allow suffering. Uh, We can see like in Job 21 where Job is just on the brink. He wants to argue with God. He is just—he is just so convinced that he is in the right, that he is innocent. He's so convinced of his innocence that he feels that if he just had, if he just could get God in a room with him and and talk to him and argue his case with him, God would see it. In Psalm 88, Psalm 88, the psalmist is just going through a really tough, difficult time of suffering. And he's calling, he's calling out to God for help. He's describing his, his, uh, his crisis that's going on. In most Psalms, when they do that, when they're crying out to God and they're wanting rescue and they're wanting help, most Psalms end with some type of praise to God or a statement of God's deliverance. But Psalm 88 kind of stands out as a sore thumb in the book of Psalms as neither one of those things happen at the end of this psalm. Psalm 88, the psalm ends with nothing good happening. The cries seem to go unheard and unanswered. But he keeps on praying and crying to God. And that's kind of like how we are sometimes. When we're going through things that just don't make any sense, or being pounded by the bitterness of life, 
would cry out to God and just ask God, why is this happening to me? And what do we get in response? Silence. And we want answers. But so often we decide, I don't know why I'm going through this, but I'm going to trust God anyway. And that's what the psalmist does in Psalm 88. In Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah is just so, uh, you know, almost depressed, I guess you could say, that he's just ready to give up. And he almost accuses God of, of allowing the suffering happening in Judah to the point that God rebukes him for it. But what we see over and over is that Bible characters are constantly bringing up this question. And you think about the end of Job. How did God answer Job's question about suffering? He answered it in chapters 38 through 41. In Job chapter 38 through 41. By pointing to his creation. By pointing to his creating work. And he starts off the question by, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he's kind of getting sarcastic with Job and saying, tell me, explain all that to me. Because you were obviously a witness of all that. And he kind of makes Job just feel humiliated and realize his questions We're not really all that important after all. And notice that God in Job chapter 38 through 41, I'm sure you're familiar with that story and God's answer to Job. God doesn't answer Job about his suffering with a logical, philosophical explanation of why he's going through suffering. God answers Job's cries for explanations by explaining who God is as creator and that God has a passion for his creation. But do you remember, what was the reason Job was suffering? The beginning of the book kind of tells us the reason. Job chapter 1 and 2, God was basically using Job to prove Satan wrong. That's why Job started going through all the suffering that happened in chapter 2. Why didn't God just explain to Job, Oh, Job, 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 listen to me. The reason you went through all this is because Satan challenged me saying that there's nothing that can make you fall. And I took up for you and said, You go do all that stuff to Job and he still won't curse me to my face. That's the reason why you've gone through all this. God never explains that to Job. But he does explain who he is, who God is, his character, his nature, and his relationship with his creation. And so we can kind of put our shoes in the or put our feet in the shoes of many of these Bible characters who are asking these questions, and never do they really get a full 
satisfying response or full satisfying answer why they're going through the suffering that they're going through. But there's a sense in which God, if we are frustrated at our lack of understanding of what God is up to, we should remember God never promised to be fully understood. And so we come back to that issue, God is just beyond our comprehension. But we can sufficiently understand Him. So we come back to the, the responses that people give, uh, or people you know, react to that dilemma we're in, that God is beyond our comprehension, one is to give up. Just give up trying to understand. One is to put God in a box and kind of uh, try to understand Him in just the way that our experience has led us to understand Him. And, uh, and then the third way, the third response, is to keep trying to know Him. And to keep trying to understand Him through study and through reading Scripture, and through thinking, and through constantly uh, diligent work at trying to understand God with an attitude that never gives up trying to understand Him, but one that is constantly looking for more and more answers. I want to give an illustration with, with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, Think about Abraham. This is Genesis chapter 22 is when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. When that happened, Abraham was by no means a theological expert. He was not a philosopher or anything like that. But Abraham knew enough about God to do what God had asked him to do. And he had so much faith in God, as we read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Hebrews 11, verse 19 tells us that he had so much faith in God as he was going up to sacrifice Isaac, that he imagined that God would do something so that he would keep his promises about bringing the seed promise through Isaac. He imagined that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead. Now that's great faith on Abraham's part. But you know what? Abraham's guess at what God was going to do was just wrong. God wasn't going to resurrect him. Because God had another idea in mind. He was going to halt the experiment and give a lamb instead. But that's the kind of the situation that we're, all of us are in. We have the revelation of God in the Bible, in Scripture. We can read it, we can understand it, we can seek it uh, for answers. But then we're, when we're going through real life, 
We don't always have the specific answers for everything that we want to know. And we think, what is God doing? What is God doing when it looks like He's not, He doesn't care about our churches? It looks like He doesn't care about uh, any Christians. What is God up to? And we, we can either throw our hands in the air and say, well, God's not loving after all. Or we can be like Abraham and dig into our faith and start imagining different ways what God is actually doing that will lead us through and give us the strength to keep on going. But when we go beyond what Scripture has said and we start making big points about, well, uh, God, this is the reason why God is letting this happen. This is the reason why God is letting this hurricane hit whatever city. Let me spell that out to you. When we start doing that, what we're doing is we're going beyond what God has told us. And we begin to presume to speak for God with final authority. And the reality is when we start doing that, we don't know what we're talking about. Deuteronomy 29. Look over at Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. It's kind of Moses just really quickly goes through the entire history of Israel from the Exodus up to this time where they're in Moab. Uh, about ready to go into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 29, there's several times where Moses points back to when the Israelites saw something that God did or knew something that God did. So in verse 2, it says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. He says, you are witnesses of what God did in the Exodus. Look at verse 6. He says, you have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. There he's kind of describing the, the wilderness wanderings and saying, well, all of that was for the purpose here that you might know who I am more clearly. In verse 16, in verse 16, he says, you know... How we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. So again, pointing back to the Exodus and now the wilderness wanderings and some of the battles they had, uh, like with uh, Sihon and Og and, uh, and some of the nations around that were close to the wilderness. He says, you know that. You've experienced that. In verse 17, he says, And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Verse 22, verse 22, he says, And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from the far land will say, When they see the afflictions of that land, the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick. Here he's kind of imagining a time where Israel will rebel and then different nations and foreigners will see the, the ruins of Jerusalem and Judea and they'll say, 
we saw what God did here because these people gave up on him. And what we see there is in this chapter, the word saw or know is used uh, several times to refer to what Israel did know. But then in verse 29, we come at the end of this section, starts talking about things we don't know, things they didn't know. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We are not going to absolutely understand God. He is beyond our comprehension, yes. But we can know enough about Him to do what God has asked us to do. That's the point. Look over at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. This is many people's favorite passage in the entire Bible. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. We know that passage and we quote that passage and we pay lip service to that passage. But the reality is, oftentimes, that the older we get, we allow the bitterness of life to define us. And our box for God gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And the words, it's just not possible, become louder and louder and louder. And when I hear Christians say things like, well, it's just not possible, God's not going to do that. I want to ask, Do you pray? And if so, to what God are you praying? Because the God of the Bible does not fit into anyone's box. He is, as the New American Standard puts this passage, He is exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we can even imagine. Think about those words. He is not just, he cannot do just what we imagine. He cannot do just what all that we can even imagine. He cannot just do what we, is beyond all that we can even imagine. Nor abundantly beyond all that we can even imagine. What God is able to do is exceedingly, abundantly beyond All that we can even imagine. The point being that what we can imagine God to be, or what God can do, 
What he actually can do is so far beyond our imagination. And grammatically, it's four steps removed from our imagination. And we have to trust in a God like that because we cannot put our trust in anything else. Even to trust a God like that when things are not going the way we think they're supposed to be going. By the way, Paul wrote those words when he was in prison in Rome. And we think about God and and, uh, his different characteristics. If it were only a matter of God's love, God is an all-loving God. Correct. If it was only a matter of God's power, he was all-powerful. If all he was was all-love, all-loving, and all-powerful, I think it would be pretty easy to guess what God would do in certain situations. But there's a factor there that we just don't understand. God's wisdom. He's not only all-loving, He's not only all-powerful, but He is all-wise. And that's the part of God that we just can't really relate to. You see, I only know the portion of the mind of God this portion of the mind of God that he has revealed. And of this portion of the mind of God, I only know that portion of it that I have sufficiently studied and read. And beyond that, I must trust to him. But you know, When you're ever tempted to think that you fully understand God, I want you to think about this passage in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is kind of described as a riding on a horse, and he has a couple of names. In verse 13, He has the name and is called the Word of God. In verse 16, he has the name written on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In verse 11, he has the name Faithful and True. Then I want you to notice in verse 12. He has also has a name written that no one knows but himself. What we have had real revealed to God through the scriptures is just the tip of the iceberg of the God that we know and the God that we serve. There is a real sense in which when we are talking about God, We are talking about a being that we really don't know very well. But you know what the greatest aspect about God is? 
is His love. What makes God most glorious? The length at which He is willing to go for those He loves. I was listening to a question and answer session one time. And the speaker, he was very well educated. He could read Hebrew and all that. And uh, someone asked him, if you could just ask God one question, what would it be? You know, here's a great thinker, a very studied man. And the question he said he would ask is, why do you love us so much? Why does God love us so much? The, the answer to that question is something I don't think we will ever know in this lifetime. But we have passages that describe God's love and the, the depth of it. If you look over at Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah chapter 55 Isaiah chapter 55, this is many people's favorite passage. Uh, there where it says in verses 8 and 9, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And a lot of times this passage is just kind of like, well, if we don't know the answer, we just point to this passage. Or Deuteronomy 29, 29, you know. And certainly this can be encouragement to, to showing us that we don't always think the way God thinks. That's obviously true. But I want you to notice the context here in verse 6, starting in verse 6. Isaiah is exhorting his readers to seek the Lord while he may be found, he says in verse 6. Call upon his name, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? That he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah's call there in verses 6 and 7 is return and repent to God so that he will forgive you. And then he says in verse 8, for... Now, whenever you see for, especially in the Old Testament, that's usually kind of saying, now I'm going to explain why you should do what I just said. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That what Isaiah, what God here is saying is that why should you seek me to, for forgiveness? Why will I forgive you? Because I don't forgive the way man forgives. I don't love the way man loves. The way God loves in comparison to us and the way we love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. My ways are not your ways, God says. My thoughts are not your thoughts. We can look at Ephesians 3 verse 19 and it's almost as if Paul says the same type of thing 
Some very different words. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. This is a prayer that Paul records here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And in this prayer, he wants the Ephesians to know something. He wants them to know the power of God through the Spirit. And he wants them to know God's love through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 18, this is part of his prayer, he says, "May have strength that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, he describes God's love in Jesus as a knowledge, if you can know a love, that surpasses knowledge. He's wanting us to know something that we can't know, in a sense. When you think about the cross, and all that was going through it, you know, Romans chapter 5, he says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet enemies, God dies for his enemies. He sacrifices himself for his enemies. How are you how do you understand a God like that? In John 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And the apostles are just so weirded out by this because this is not what's supposed to happen. The leader of a group is never supposed to wash the feet of uh, the, the students of a group. And that was just common, a common understanding in their culture uh, back then. There is no parallel writing uh, of a superior washing the feet of an inferior class in ancient times. And here you have the God of the universe incarnate in Jesus kneeling down and doing something that even slaves were not supposed to do. It was too low for slaves to do it in their culture. But Jesus bends down and does it Anyway, you know, that's kind of a small picture of what God has done by sending His Son to come to earth, to live as a man, and to give up His life, be beaten, and be spit at, be torn up, be nailed to a cross, And to die, the whole time, people were mocking him, making fun of him. You saved others, but you can't save yourself. It 
If He's the Son of God, let Him come down from the cross and then we'll believe. Ha! He's not going to do it. He can't do it. And God, Jesus, is enduring all of that mockery, all of that pain, to the very last second. What kind of God is that? There's a song that sometimes we sing, and the, one of the lyrics goes that, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. That's one of the reasons why we gather every Sunday, every Wednesday, so that we may know better and come to a more clear understanding of exactly what Jesus did and who Jesus is, who God is, and what He would have us do for Him. I thank you for your attention this morning. If you have not been baptized and you have not surrendered yourself to this God and made your allegiance toward Jesus to live for Him for all your life because that is how God created mankind to live. When we live for Jesus, we're actually doing what God created us to do. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, I want you to think about all that as we stand, as we sing.